So now we're going to uh, move into talking about our vision and vision 2020, but it's not limited to 2020. We're just kind of laying it out, but this is the vision for the church in the days ahead. So as we move forward into maturity as a community of Christ followers, I think it's important that we have a shared vision of who we are and what it is that we are called to do as the people of God at this time and in this place. Now, in Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, the second chapter, the second verse, it says this, and this is basically our uh, text for today. Uh, The Lord spoke and he said, write the vision and make it plain that those who read it may run. And, and that's what we want to do. We want all of us to have an understanding of, you know, this is who we are as a church. This is our vision, and this is how I participate in it. So today we're going to look at the mission, vision, and core values of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, beginning with um, mission, Now, in missiological terms or sometimes in maybe theological circles, you you come across this term, the missio dei. Uh, I was in a class a while back, and our our, uh, class was, we were talking about models of different church models and movements and so forth. And we began the class by talking about the missio dei. The missio dei is a reference to the mission of God. That's what it means, the mission of God. So, did you know God is actually on a mission himself? And so when we talk about the Missio Dei, we talk about what God is doing. And, and we've summarized the Missio Dei in these words, engaging um, in God's mission to renew all things through Jesus. So the mission of God is to renew all things through Jesus. That's what he is in the process of doing. And we know that that is going to culminate with uh, the establishing of a new heaven and a new earth. But it's happening through a process, and we are part of that process. And although God will ultimately renew the universe, guess what? He started with people. He started with people. And so he is renewing people in the process of renewing all things. And that is his mission. And so we are engaging in God's mission to renew all things through Jesus. Now, that's the mission. The vision, then, is a reference to what we are doing. So the mission is what God is doing. The vision is what we are doing. And what we are doing is we are pursuing Jesus' renewal by reaching, equipping, and loving people in Orange County and beyond. So Orange County, this is our home. This is our base. This is where God has uh, situated us. And so we start here, but we don't, we're not limited to uh, the vision for our mission being just strictly Orange County. We are looking to um, reach and equip and love people uh, beyond, all the way around the world. And so um, Jesus' renewal is what Jesus does. He renews people. So if we uh, 
come into contact with Christ through the gospel and we respond to that, what happens? That results in a renewal. It's a new birth. It's born anew or born from above or born again, as we have it stated in um, John chapter 3, verse 5 there. So we're pursuing Jesus' renewal by reaching. That's evangelism. That's getting the gospel to people, whether it be through efforts collectively like evangelistic outreaches or personal evangelism where we are seeking to tell other people about the renewal of Jesus in our own lives so that they might be renewed by Jesus in their lives. So reaching and then equipping, this is the discipleship part. Building ourselves up in the most holy faith through fellowship, through the scriptures and so forth. And then when we talk about loving people, um, we're talking about how um, in, in reaching and equipping, the atmosphere for that is love. So as we reach out to Orange County, as we reach out to the community, and, and some of you remember just a few weeks ago uh, when we, at the, at the end of the year, we talked about some of the things we did last year, and Lance came up and talked about how K-Wave partnered um, with the different community groups and how we gave out you know, 80,000 toys or whatever it was. And, and yet doing all of that to impact the community uh, through the love of Jesus. And so that is the vision. But now we want to talk about the core values. And this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time here this morning. And the core values are how we are doing it. How we are carrying out the vision to fulfill the mission of God. And we have here laid out seven core values. So once again, the core values are the principles that shape the attitude and actions of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. So let me just run really quickly through the seven. We are, first of all, a Jesus church. Secondly, a kingdom-minded church. Thirdly, a Great Commission church. Then we are a gospel-centered church a spirit-empowered church, number five. Six, we are a grace church. And seven, we are a culturally engaged church. So I want to walk us through each one of these. Now, um, in the a message that I give transitioning from 2018 to 2019, I did the first three of these. So some of you were here, but probably some of you weren't as well. So I'm going to go over them again, but I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail. But Let's just look at the first three rather quickly. So we are, first of all, a Jesus church. What does that mean? Well, we are committed to following the word, works, and ways of Jesus. And, and to put it even more clearly, I think, uh, this means that we are, number one, a Bible church. So we are rooted and grounded and established in the scriptures. We believe the Bible is God's uh, inspired and authoritative word. It is the, the means through which God has communicated to us. Jesus is the living word, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the Bible is the written word. So we connect. We couldn't be a Jesus church if we were not dependent on and connected with the scriptures. And so our, our history, we have a, we have a history 
of uh, being a Bible-believing and, and a Bible-teaching church. And, and that's never going to change. That, that is who we are. Those are our deepest convictions, and our roots go down deep there. So we are a Bible church. Secondly, um, we, we aspire to be a church of servants because Jesus was a servant, Remember, he humbled himself. He became of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. And so in, in being a Jesus church, we are aspiring that our lives be conformed to the image of Jesus and that we become more and more like him in regard to serving one another and to serving um, the world in his name. And then the environment is that of love. God is love. Jesus is the incarnation of God. He's the incarnation of love. So if we're a Jesus church, we're going to be a church that has an environment of love. So when people walk through these doors or people step onto this campus, um, whether it's through a supernatural sensation that God's presence is here and I feel his love, or it's because some really loving person greeted me and welcomed me and helped me find my way, um, or I came to church and I was beat up and broken today, and man, somebody just reached out in love and encouraged me. What, however it's manifested, that's what it means to be a Jesus church. Following the word, works, and ways of Jesus. Secondly, we are a kingdom-minded church. And when, when we say kingdom-minded, we, we mean that we're for the kingdom of Christ. And what can happen and what tends to happen is, is we tend to get um, into sort of a narrow lane um, where we, we, we just sort of think mostly about ourselves. Maybe it's about our church or maybe it's about our particular denomination or group or network that we're involved in. And, and then there's just a tendency to exclude others, you know, sort of separate ourselves and, and disconnect. We believe that the body of Christ is universal. We believe that God's people are everywhere under all different kinds of of banners. We are under the banner of Calvary Chapel, but I just spent the week uh, in my cohort with, um, you know, guys that are uh, under the banner of the Baptist Church and um, uh, Acts 29 Network and um, Anglican and, you know, Methodist. And so, but we understand that, that the kingdom of God extends there. And so we are a kingdom-minded church, meaning that we partner with gospel-centered churches, regardless of denomination or network, to impact our community and world for Jesus. So we're going to link arms with people, and we're going to do things for the kingdom that might not even necessarily benefit us directly here, but it's, it's adding to the kingdom. And sometimes we're going to do it with people that we don't exactly agree with every finer point of theology on. You see, something that happens with Christians is sometimes you think that unless we're 100% agreed across the board on everything, then we can't work together and we should be suspicious of those people. And those people, you know, they're, they're probably bad because they don't believe exactly what we believe. We don't want to be that. That, that separatism is has killed and continues to kill 
the work of the kingdom. So a kingdom-minded church means, again, that uh, we, we've got our convictions, but, but we're going to, um, again, lock arms with those who we believe are also seeking to advance the kingdom. And on occasions, we're going to work uh, together with them for the bigger picture, the greater cause of what God is doing in the world. Uh, we are thirdly a Great Commission church. And the Great Commission, maybe you know what that is exactly. If you don't know what it is, it's what Jesus gave to his disciples when he sent them out into the world. Go into the world, make disciples of all nations, um, teaching them to observe everything that I've taught you. Go and preach the gospel to every creature. That's the Great Commission. And we are a great commission church. We are committed to proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and planting churches among all people. Now, we have approximately close to 2,000 churches in our network. Um, Now, how did those churches come into existence? Well, they came into existence because we have always been a great commission church. When I was 25 or 6, I was on staff here, and the Lord sent me out from here to do a new church down in North San Diego County. And I did that. But when I was pastoring that church, I sent a number of guys out into different parts of the country to start new churches in communities. And then... God gave us a vision to send people out of the country into other parts of the world to start new churches. And then after I pastored that church for uh, several years, God sent me to go plant a church in London, England, and I was there. And then as a result of that, other churches were planted. So this is something that we do. We are a great commission church. And we proclaim the gospel, we present the good news of Jesus, and we make disciples, and we're longing to see that churches will then birth new churches. So when we use the term planting, sometimes that's confusing for people. I've had people say like, what is this planting? What are you talking about? You know? uh, well, the church is an organic thing. And just as you take a seed and you plant it in the ground and the life springs forth and and ultimately the plant and then the fruit, that's what it means to to plant a church. So we're committed to doing that. We have been doing that throughout uh, most of our history and we will continue to do that. Number four, we are a gospel-centered church. Now, a gospel-centered church, um, there's some nuance to this that I want to explain to you because... I think most churches, most evangelical churches would say, we're a gospel-centered church. Of course we're a gospel-centered church. What else are, what would we even be doing if we weren't a gospel-centered church? But we mean something very specific by that. And this is what we mean. As a gospel-centered church, we point people to Jesus and the gospel from every passage of scripture and his death and resurrection as their hope of transformation. Now, here's the nuance. You can teach the Bible and actually miss Jesus in it. You can teach the Bible and miss the gospel. Uh, as, As a matter of fact, this happened back in the time of Jesus. Maybe you remember, Jesus says to the religious leaders at one point, who were Bible experts. These guys knew the Bible better than most people know it today. And Jesus said this to them. He said, you search the scriptures 
because in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me, and you won't come to me. So a classic example, they missed the, the tree because of the forest. They missed Jesus. Now, believe it or not, you can do that in the church as well. You can do that today as a Christian. Now, if I said this Wednesday night, we're going to teach Exodus 20, come on out. Uh, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. So we're going to teach on the Ten Commandments. And, and Wednesday night, I could walk us through the Ten Commandments. I could show us what the Ten Commandments are, how they apply today. And then I could say to everybody, man, get out there and live the Ten Commandments. But if I fail to insert that actually I can't, none of us can live the Ten Commandments unless we're born again, filled with the Spirit, empowered by Christ to do that because of what he did on the cross, I'm not doing a service to anyone. The best I'm going to do is, is I'm going to cause some people to be condemned because they know, man, I can't live up to the Ten Commandments. And on the other side, I'm going to cause people to become prideful and say, well, I got this covered. You know, God, do you have any more commandments? I mean, at 10, well, that's easy. You know, what's the, I, I can do that in my sleep. So you can actually teach the Bible, even the New Testament, you can teach the, the ethical passages and so forth. You, you could teach it and miss Christ and miss the lens through which we have to understand it. So we have to understand that life transformation takes place not by me reading um, the list of the works of the flesh and the spirit in Galatians and say, man, I got to do better and try harder to be more spiritual. I know I have to understand that this happens to me because of what Jesus did on the cross. And as I just apply that and, and lean into what he did and the fact that he sent his spirit. And now walking in the spirit, I do not fulfill the, the work, lust of the flesh. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about a gospel-centered church. We're viewing everything through ultimately the lens of the gospel. And then fifthly, we are a spirit-empowered church. We pursue the Holy Spirit's presence, power, and gifts to be and do all God desires. So we recognize that we can't do this stuff ourselves. God never intended us to do this ourselves. Uh, Jesus said, after he gave them that commission that we talked about a moment ago, he said, but wait. Wait till you receive power from heaven for the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you and then you're gonna go be my witnesses. And so we believe in that. We believe in the power of the Spirit. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe in prophecy and words of wisdom and healing. And we even believe in the gift of tongues. And so we're open to that working of the Spirit. We want the Holy Spirit's direction. We want the Holy Spirit's wisdom. We want the Holy Spirit's power upon our lives and all the ministry that we are engaging in. Number six, we are a grace church. We are a grace church. And again, this is one of those sort of like a no-brainer, right? Oh, of course we're a grace church. You know, we're, we're a gospel church. But, you know, you can, you can think of yourself as a grace church, but not practically be one. As a matter of fact, there are churches that the, the title of their church is grace something or other. But when you walk in, you don't really sense the grace. You see, grace manifests itself in graciousness. 
So you can talk about the doctrines of grace. You can talk about grace all you want. But if you have no graciousness toward people, then you're not a grace church. Well, we aspire to be a grace church. And let me again define this. We practice encouragement and patience toward each other in the lifelong process of transformation. Here's what I mean. We recognize that all of us are in a process. All of us are in a process of of sanctification. All of us are in a process, a lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus. And because we're in a process, we want to give space for the grace of God. Now, here's what I discovered through my own life. My... Um, graciousness toward others was really determined by my own perspective regarding myself and whether I was doing well or not doing well. So, so in other words, my place or my, my you know, my spiritual position kind of then um, was in some ways, a determining factor on how I was going to deal with other people. So for a period of time, when I thought that I was just so holy and so, you know, not sinlessly perfect, but pretty darn close, uh, when I thought that, then my tendency was to really be hard on everybody who wasn't living up to the standard that I had kind of set. But something happened. I realized that, oh, no, I'm a sinner, too. I'm a big sinner. And so once you realize you're a big sinner, then you need big grace. And once you start experiencing that big grace, then you realize, you know what? I got to extend this to other people as well because we're, we're, we're all sinners. And a lack of graciousness in some ways is a failure to recognize our own need for grace. The more I realize I need God's grace, you know, the, the, the greater than my uh, tendency is to be gracious toward others. You know, some years ago, I had a pastor that was going to come and see me, and I did not want to see him. I, I just did not want to take this appointment. He had uh, had a severe uh, moral failure, uh, lost his marriage, devastated his church, was removed from the ministry, and, you know, he, he wanted to come in and make an appointment with, me, appointment with me, and I just didn't want to do it. And here's why I didn't want to do it, because... I just felt like I need to be mad at this guy because he's such a big sinner. And I just didn't want to go through the emotion of that because I I felt like in order to be faithful to God, because surely God's mad at him. So uh, I need to be mad at him too when he comes in. And that was just too much emotional effort. I didn't really want to extend it. So I was like, I don't want to see this guy. And then before I could say, no, I'm not going to see him. There he was in the lobby waiting to have the appointment with me. So I was stuck. And I'm like, oh, Lord, I don't want to see him. Because seriously, in my own heart, I'm just thinking, um, I got to really be, I got to show him how angry God is with him. And, and the Lord, just in an instant, how he does so wonderfully sometimes, he just said, Brian, I do not need you to be uh, angry at him. I, I don't need you to be mad at him. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm not mad at him. You know, uh, he, we've, <laughs> I've been dealing with him. And, you know, today, if you would just, Listen to him 
and be merciful and just, you know, share, your, share my love with them, that, that will be sufficient. And I said, okay, I guess I could do that. Uh, so anyway, you know, we sat down and he told me the whole gory story about everything. And, and at the end, God just enabled me to express love and mercy and grace toward him because that was God's heart. But, but I was thinking it wasn't. I was thinking that God was really angry at him, so I needed to be angry at him. And so then my attitude was one of judgment on him. And it wasn't an attitude of graciousness. So you see, when we, when we realize the heart of God, when we realize our own sinfulness, uh, it really goes a long way. So we're talking about giving people space. We're talking about recognizing um, you know, as a young pastor, I, I had in my mind, I just had an idea of how long sanctification should take place. And if you weren't on my schedule for sanctification, then, you know, it was trouble. And it might even be like, hey, you need to leave the church because you're just not, you know, you're not coming along well enough yet. Um, I told you I started pastoring when I was 26. So, you know, part of it was just my immaturity. Um, but, the, but the, the more you go on with the Lord, the more you realize your own sinfulness, the more you, you see the mercy and the grace of God in your own life, you know what it does? It causes you to be gracious. And it gives you uh, space for grace. And that's the kind of church we want to be. You know, people are in a process and they're going to come and they're somewhere in that process. And we need to be patient and we need to recognize that they're, they're on a journey. I read a book this past year, and it, it really illustrated this whole point in such a powerful way. And it reminded me again of just the amazing graciousness of God. So it's a book called A War of Love. So written by a guy named David Bennett. David's become a friend of mine. And um, it, it, David was a gay activist in Australia who came to faith. He came to faith under the uh, really extraordinary circumstances. I mean, he was in a gay bar and the last thing in the world he ever thought was going to happen was that he was going to come to faith in Christ. And yet right there in that context, as this young lady sat there and just shared the gospel with him, it's like a lightning bolt from heaven hit him and the love of God overwhelmed him and he became a Christian. Now, fast forward three years. Three years later, David is still thinking that he's going to get married someday in a same-sex relationship. Because he thought, well, the problem is promiscuity. So as long as you have a, a, a faithful marriage, it doesn't matter what sex you're married to, as long as you're faithful to your spouse, that's all that really matters. So he's just thinking, you know, he's, he's in a process. He's definitely a Christian. He's part of a church. So he's, he's thinking that, but he goes to the, to the leadership of the church and he just says, hey, uh, I just wanted to bounce some things off you. You know, this is what I'm thinking. Just wanted to make sure you're on board. Basically, I'm planning to get married someday. Don't have anybody in mind yet. But, you know, when the time comes, I just want to make sure that uh, you're going to do the wedding and so forth. Uh, the church leadership said, well, let's talk for a moment. Uh, okay, that's not going to happen. Uh, we cannot do that because God does not bless the same-sex union. That's, that's not God's plan. But they said this. They said, but don't leave. Don't leave the church. We love you. You have a family here. Stay with us and let's, let's let God work these things out in your life. So he sensed just a tremendous amount of love. He stayed at the church. 
Now, of course, today, uh, he's crystal clear on what the issues are. He understands very uh, clearly from Scripture that there, there is no same-sex marriage in his future. And he's out preaching the gospel and leading people to Christ. And, and yet, I can even say myself, there probably was a point in my own journey as a pastor where I might have told him, look, you, you, you can't come to the church anymore. So, space for grace. Now, each case is going to be different. It's going to be individual. He, he was genuine. It wasn't like he was trying to manipulate or trying to work the system or trying to get away with something. He just was ignorant. And they could sense the sincerity, so they gave him that space to grow. So, <coughs> that, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. You know, people have asked me, like, well, what happens if, you know, like same-sex couple come in and they're holding hands and they're sitting together. Well, okay, that's, you know, we're, we're, we want people to hear the gospel. A couple years ago, we had to do a festival. Some of you know we do a festival in the UK and I might have shared this story, but it illustrates it perfectly. Uh, we have an online sign-up and so people just come to the festival and a couple days before they go through an orientation, they get assigned a place to serve. And um, so one of the people that signed up online, Michelle, um, you know, at the day of orientation, we, read, we realized that Michelle was actually a man who had transitioned, um, you know, um, a trans woman. And so everybody's looking at each other like, what do we do now? And, you know, it was a, it was a good question. It was a serious moment. And I had to, I have to make the final decision. So I'm like, okay, Lord, what do we do now? And you know, I just sensed the Lord said, just go with it. Don't worry about it. Just, you know, just love. And we did. And so that person spent the week with us, with our team serving. So many people got to minister the love of Jesus to that person. And come to find out that person had actually just become a Christian not that long ago. But through all kinds of confusion and crazy events, they had actually gone through a medical transition and didn't know what to do, didn't even know what to think about it. And at the end of the week, that person said this to me. And every time we were teaching all the different sessions, I remember the person was sitting in the front row, and they were on the edge of their seat. And, and at the end of the week, as we were talking, he said, you know, I have never heard the Bible like I heard it this week. It's just like I've just come alive with God's word. It's so wonderful. And I could just sense like, okay, the Lord is at work. And God is working in that person's life. So we have to give space for grace. A church of grace is what a church of grace does. We are recognizing that there's a, a lifelong process of transformation, and we're helping people get there. Finally, a culturally engaged church. What does that mean? Well, we seek to wisely counter, create, and celebrate culture as we engage in God's mission. So counter culture means, you know, we're going to be the opposite of culture. And in some places, we've got to do that, right? We have to push back against the culture and say, no, 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 that's, that, that's a problem. Uh, the church historically has created culture. And, and we want to create culture as well as God would lead. You know, this is something that some of you don't know. Probably many of you don't know this. But what you experience here today, and as you come regularly, or to any, I mean, any church 
most churches, let's just take Orange County, most of the churches that you might find yourself at in Orange County are similar to the way we do things. You know, we got a contemporary worship thing with a band. Uh, we're all relatively relaxed as far as our uh, apparel and things like that. You know, it's a, sort of a casual environment. Um, but what you don't know is that this church pioneered that. That's the amazing thing. Because back in the late 60s and early 70s, when Pastor Chuck opened the door to the counterculture to the hippies and just let them come as they came, um, that began to change church culture. And now it's just the common culture of so many churches. But people who study church movements and things like that, they recognize that it was Calvary Chapel that sort of spearheaded this uh, kind of cultural change within the church, but not just within the church. You know, in the corporate world today, you know, looking for different corporate models for leadership and so forth. Do you know what? You know what? One of the top corporate models for leadership is these days: servant leadership. That that's what they're saying now in in the the corporate world. They're saying, you know, leaders, CEOs, people like that, they should be servants. Where did they ever get that idea? Well, they got that idea. They don't know it, but it came from Jesus. Jesus is the servant king. He's the great servant leader. And so, again, the church has been instrumental in creating culture. And as God would lead, of course, we want to do that if he would want us to do that. And then thirdly and finally, to celebrate culture. You know, there's certain things that are just culture that that we need to be able to celebrate as Christians. I, I don't think as Christians we should be against everything. And, and sometimes that happens. If you get a super separatist mentality where you're just totally separated from the world and, you're, and your interpretation of the world is basically everything that's not in the church, then I think that's problematic. You know, years ago there was a, a guy who wrote a, he was like a, he wrote like satirical kinds of songs his name is Steve Taylor. And, and Steve wrote this one song, I'll never forget it. And he, he was talking about the Bible Belt. He was talking about the, you know, the churches in the South and so forth. And he, and he said this. He said, the Bible Belt folk think living is a sin. So they all start dying from the day they're born again. And you know, there's some truth to that. There are some Christians who basically just think everything in life is sinful and, you know, you're, everything is, you know, you're, you're against the culture. And there are things in the culture that are just cultural. We don't have to be um, worried about that or, or thinking so much about it. You know, of course, you know, we do the talk, the radio call-in program and stuff. You know, on, like at Christmas time, people will call in and like, why are you celebrating Christmas? It's a pagan holiday. Didn't you know that December 25th is Saturnalia and that's a pagan thing and we shouldn't be celebrating Christmas as Christians? Really? Are you serious? You know, how many people in the world when they hear Christmas think Saturnalia? Like, <laughs> only separatist fundamentalist Christians think that. Everybody else thinks Christmas? Well, that's the birth of Jesus Christ. So if you take a cultural thing like that and you try to make it some big deal, that's just not helpful. That's counterproductive. So, so we want to celebrate the culture. 
you know, art, literature, music, those, those kinds of things, there's, there's aspects of it that are good. And, and we don't have to be so separated that we just end up being completely out of touch. God wants us to be in touch so we can connect with people. So a culturally engaged church, we seek to wisely counter, create, or celebrate culture as we engage in God's mission. Now, application. And let me just assure you, the message today is long because we've had a longer service. One of my goals as we jump into our new teaching series in February is to have shorter sermons. So that's one of my 2020 goals. So pray for me for that because uh, I'm going to try to do that. Um, but but I do I do want to just have some application here. So so here are the things. This is this is the vision as we've looked at it. These are the core values. So here's the application in three simple words: time, talents, treasure. Application is okay. How do I I want to be part of God's mission? You know, God does not save us. And then just say, okay, now you're saved. Just go on your merry way and I'll see you in heaven in a few decades or whatever it is. No, God saves us and he brings us into the mission. And so, first of all, we have to make time for the mission of God. We have to recognize, no, this is something I am part of. Paul puts it this way in writing to the Ephesians 5.15. He says, pay careful attention to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Making the most of the time. We don't have a whole lot of time. And we need to use our time wisely. And as a follower of Jesus, guess what God wants? He wants your time. He wants you to give him He's given you time, all the time you've got, God gave to you. He's allotted you amount of time. He wants you to give that back to him because, of course, it takes time to engage in the work of God. Secondly, talents. Romans 12, 6, Paul writes this. He says, having different gifts according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Every believer has a gift from God or sometimes multiple gifts. And those gifts are not intended by God to just be neglected. Paul says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, stir up the gift that is in you. Fan it to full flame. And when God gives you a gift or gifts, he expects you to use them. And of course, they're used in the context that we're talking about. Now, maybe you think, well, gosh, I don't even know if I have a gift. If you're a believer, you have a gift. You might not even know what it is yet, but you'll discover it as you take the time to do that. So time, talents, your gift has a, a, a specific um, purpose within the body of Christ. And then thirdly, treasure. Treasure is your resources. Now, let me read to you a passage uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And listen to what it says. Paul is writing. He says, each person should do as they have decided in their heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Remember, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. I want you to notice this first word, each. 
each person. Did you know that as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, God wants your treasure. He wants you to give to his work. Now, I'm gonna give you a statistic that might blow your mind, but it's true. And it's not just true here. It's true across the board in churches. 20% of the people in the churches support the entire ministry. So that means 80% of people never give. They just take. Does that sound like a wrong equation to you? It certainly does to me. That's wrong. 100% of the people should be giving. Now, people are gonna give differently because some people can afford to give more. Some people are gonna have to give less. But Paul, in that same passage, but back in the eighth chapter of 2 Corinthians, he says this, he says, he, he says, as is written, he's quoting from the Old Testament, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. There's, there's an inequality. But you see, God calls every one of us to give. And our treasure is something that God says, I want some of that. I want you to give. And this shows your buy-in to the work that God is doing. So just think of it. If, if, if 100% of the people just gave something, you decide. The principle is if you are stingy, well, your return's gonna be minimal. If you're generous, your return's gonna be generous. Uh, if you hold back, you're gonna hold back a blessing as well. That's, that's the principle. But you decide the amount. Nobody decides for you. Now, I, I'm just gonna say this personally. I give to this church. I write a check to this church. Now, I get a paycheck from this church as well. But I don't consider my ministry here as, well, you know, I give my time, therefore I don't give any money. Cheryl and I write a check out uh, regularly to give to the church. We believe that we should. And we also give to other churches, specifically to other churches, because we have children that pastor churches. So uh, we give to their church so they can... Um, eat dinner because uh, they have the same problem in their church at 20% of the people and their churches are smaller. So, but listen, this is, this is the application of all these things. Time, talent, and treasure. If you're serious about following Christ, then this is how you're going to engage. This is what he calls us to do. And I want to close by quoting from John Stott, John R.W. Stott, one of my favorite um, commentators, a very well-known British evangelical leader. Um, and I've, I've quoted this passage before, but it just kind of sums it up. Talking about the church, the church has a double identity. We are a people who have been called out of the world to worship God and sent back into the world to witness and serve. These are, in fact, two of the classical marks of the church. According to the first, the church is holy, called out to belong to God and worship him. According to the second, the church is apostolic, sent out into the world on its mission. That is the church. And that is who we are as a church. And, and these things that I talked about here today, basically you could just look at this. This is the DNA of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. If this is your church, if this is your home church, then this is our DNA. This, you're part of this. And I just want to uh, close by 
just telling you, I am so excited that we're all in this together and that we're all on a team and that we get to carry out the vision to see in our sphere the mission of God accomplished during this time frame that God has allowed for us. So, Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling us to be your people, forgiving our sins and bringing us into your family. But then, Lord, thank you that you've given us things to do. Lord, that you're at work in the world, that you are in that process of renewing all things through Jesus and you let us become part of that process and partner with you. And what a joy that is. So Lord, here we are today and we just, we surrender our time and our talents and our treasure to you. And we pray, Lord, that as we enter this new year, that you would just revolutionize our lives personally and collectively as we move forward in the mission of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.